foreign agent laws and hybrid warfare. Today I'll be talking about media restrictions and unrestricted conflict. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. The greatest source of kerfuffle being kicked up at the moment by the liberal Russian commentariat, and increasingly, unfortunately, that tends to mean people based outside of Russia, as well as those like me who are Russia watchers and Russia researchers, is a very draconian-seeming list of new restrictions put out by the FSB, the Federal Security Service, on what might make you eligible to be identified as a foreign agent. And so I wanted to talk about that at first and again put it into a bit of a context. Because after all, we must be aware that censorship is hardly unique to Russia, but also is hardly unique to today's Russia. We can go back. I mean, I always loved the tale, possibly apocryphal, but too good to check of the fact that in Nicholas I's time, during the mid-19th century, censorship reached such a peak that a cookery book was in fact censored because its reference to the free flow of air in the oven was seen as somehow encoding a call to liberal rising. Of course, one of the key things about censorship is not just simply about affecting what is said, but also asserting control over the instruments for the dissemination of information. And this is why it was always so important to be able to have alternative ways of getting material to the masses. The Bolsheviks, for example, you know, had their printing presses, including a sort of secret press in Tbilisi, that was paid for in part by the notorious expropriations, what you and I would call bank robberies. Moving on, I mean, obviously there was all the attempts to smuggle all kinds of materials into the Soviet Union, whether we're talking about Bibles or whether we're talking about such banned classics as Boris Pasternak's Dr. Zhivago, smuggled in by the CIA. And then after that, we had the whole joyful, well, I say joyful, joyful from the point of view of someone like me who sometimes can derive a rather morally dubious pleasure from the lunacies of present and past, the whole business of how the Soviet Union handled photocopiers. Photocopiers, which are, after all, intended to be precisely a means for the dissemination of information as easily, conveniently and quickly as possible. Which, of course, is a good thing, unless, of course, you are an information control society or regime, in which case they are a terrifying thing which is why photocopiers, in, certainly in the earlier years of their use in the, in the Soviet Union, were essentially locked. There will be a designated key holder whose job it was to record every single copy that was made in a log, what was copied, by whom, for what purpose. 
and at the same time the photocopier itself would would log the number of copies it, it had made and the police or the KGB would from time to time come and inspect the logs and make sure that the numbers added up and so forth. So what was meant to be a boon to the rapid dissemination of information of course became another pain in the backside bureaucratic chore for people in the office and for the control structures. So this is always why, why it's so important. But of course, the thing is, in the modern age, the medium, the instruments whereby information is, is disseminated are that much harder to control. In the bad old days, yes, you, you had your, your border guards assiduously checking for Bibles hidden in seemingly innocuous goods being brought into the Soviet Union. You had the jamming stations to try and drown out the BBC World Service or Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Nowadays, though, the age of the internet really is the age of mass dissemination, especially when associated with the smartphone and all sorts of other sort of boons. So instead, what happens is authoritarians or authoritarian structures go back to first principles and again try and ensure that the, the information that is being disseminated can be controlled as much as possible. And this seems to be the context of the FSB's latest little blow against transparency and debate. A whole series of rules of information that is explicitly not state secrets, I mean those disseminating those is already criminalised, but rather information that, to quote, foreign states, organisations and citizens can use against Russia's security. Now, this is a monstrously and indeed deliberately broad interpretation. And the examples, the, the, the information they give is everything from um, the morale of troops and corruption within the military to problems going on with Russia's space program. And let's face it, if anyone follows Roscosmos, they will know that the problems are myriad manifold and quite frankly often to do with embezzlement rather than anything else. Release these kind of information and you can be tagged as a foreign agent. Now, foreign agent, I mean, that term implies that somehow you're regarded precisely as a traitor. It's not quite that draconian. But at the very least, it can be distinctly irksome about the restrictions it places upon you, about the constant notifications you have to provide on everything, including social media, that you have been designated a foreign agent. But also there is the risk that you could be sent to prison if you are deemed to have willfully failed to, to register yourself. And actually for media outlets, it can indeed be an existential issue, not least because it tends to mean that your chances of getting ad revenue will dry up almost instantly. And, and this is what we've seen with other targets. So why this particular new set of restrictions, given that it's not as though the Russian state lacked instruments to use against people whom it wished to Lies. Well, Tatyana Stanovaya, an analyst for whom I have a lot of respect, she presents essentially three different strands and suggests that actually the whole point is that they intertwine. And I think generally speaking, it's usually a good answer when one looks at new measures in today's Russia, not to look for one simple explanation. It often is precisely that we tend to get a variety of different forces that align. Anyway, the three that she raised are, first of all, she presents it as geopolitical. 
And the idea is being to at least notionally mirror American and other foreign agent legislation and to use it to strike back when these nasty Westerners are actually doing anything against Russian channels. And this, in this respect, I mean, we, we've seen, for example, very recently, because of measures being taken against RT, remember the, the propaganda TV station, RT Deutsch, the German one, that now there is pressure coming from RT to actually do something against YouTube. Ridiculously asymmetrical, because what has YouTube got to do with whatever the Germans decide to do about RT? And also, I mean, I must say, I would say it's distinctly problematic, given the extent to which actually YouTube is still very widely used and very popular within Russia. But it, it speaks to this attempt of us constantly trying to push back against perceived information warfare and information restrictions coming from, from the West. And in an information war, every attack needs a counterattack. So from Stanovaya's point of view, and again, I think on this she's right, I mean, particularly we're talking about RT's editor-in-chief, Margarita Simonyan, and also Alexei Gromov, who's one of the deputy heads of the presidential administration and particularly is responsible for, for media affairs. So there is the geopolitical dimension. The second issue that, that Stanovaya raises is that actually this also comes from the security agencies for whom this is a useful opportunity to, to use foreign agent legislation to further expand their options for trying to muzzle or suppress those people who are saying things that they regard as anti-regime, anti-systemic. And obviously this is this sort of kind of thing which one would associate with Nikolai Patrushev, Secretary of the Security Council, and the Federal Security Service. And I certainly agree that this is the kind of measure that for them gives them an extra tool in the toolbox. They're clearly not going to start imposing it, I think, on, on a gratuitously broad level. It would be ridiculous to do so. But it does mean that when they have someone whom they wish to target, when they have someone whom they wish to intimidate, this is an alternative way of doing so. But it is also more about pushing this notion of the beleaguered state and the extent to which these are conversations which are being had within a relatively small circle of people. I will come to in a moment the whole issue of how this is being presented to the Russian population more widely. But to a large extent, this is an opportunity through its own restrictions for the FSB and the rest of the more paranoid security agencies to be in dialogue with the rest of the, the, the political elite and saying, look, we are imposing this as a sign that we are indeed in these wartime footing. And these are circumstances in which there is no room for neutrality. You are either a Russian patriot or you are acting indirectly, maybe even inadvertently, but nonetheless for the interests of the West. And this is, after all, the sort of the basis on, on which they, they went after Navalny. And I think it has been used much more broadly to draw that sharp, sharp line. Are you for us or are you against us? And then thirdly, we have the notion that this is essentially about politics and, and propaganda. It's about attempting to target a more liberal and indeed more critical constituency, as well as analysts, commentators, pundits and hinder their capacity to carry out their professional roles, but also carry out, as they would see it, their citizens' roles of precisely drawing attention to, to failings on the part of the state. 
And again, you know, it's no wonder that this is the kind of thing that appeals to the people in the presidential administration who are responsible for tra- precisely for trying to sort of maintain the veneer of efficiency and honesty on the part of the state, as well as you know, the, the whole realm of what Stanovaya calls the multiple volunteer informers. In other words, what you might think of as, as, as the entrepreneurs of censorship, the people who come forward and lead the campaign that this outlet or that should be considered to be subversive and a foreign agent, people who actually want to use it as an opportunity to publicly perform loyalty, in other words, to demonstrate that they are amongst the most passionate of the Kremlin supporters in the hope that this will catch the eye of someone higher up the system and such like. So in other words, this is just simply an opportunity to win some political brownie points, to strut for a few moments on the the, the stage of of, of public attention and hopefully win some kind of, of political advantage as a result. But again, I think it's important to stress the extent to which this is actually taking place within a relatively narrow field of discourse. I was looking at the, the mainstream media, um, the mainstream state media that I'm talking about, or at least kind of not directly opposed to the state. And what I thought was really quite striking was actually the absence of any discussion. And this is something that obviously is, for very, very understandable reasons, monopolizing attention within the the liberal I think it's fair to say anti-regime and largely emigre outfits like Medusa, as well as those domestic newspapers such as Novaya Gazeta, which are, I would say, flirting on the boundaries. But if one looks at the mainstream, there's very, very little about it. I mean, Lienta Ru, which, which like most outlets, I would suggest is in some ways a, but a shadow of its former self, but nonetheless, it, it, it is pretty decent. I mean, they, on the 1st of October, ran a piece about how the Ministry of Justice had targeted a, a particular um, outlet, quite quite splendidly, um, a limited licence company called Journalist Innostrani Agent, which, uh, well, there you go, ironically enough, means journalist, foreign agent. So perhaps we shouldn't be surprised. But there you go, that was just one very, very specific example. But actually discussion of this this new set of, of rules coming out of the FSB, distinctly lacking. There, oh, there was also actually an article called Foreign Agent in, in Commerçant that, that got me excited for a moment until I realised that it was actually looking at the latest James Bond film, No Time to Die, which is, incidentally I'm very much looking forward to seeing. So why? Well... Again, because this is not designed for the mass audience. This is not yet a situation in which we have an attempt to sort of whip up some kind of general society-wide paranoias and the kind of witch hunts that that tends to engender. No, we're not at that kind of, frankly, high Stalinism type level. Instead, this is about the elite broadly configured so in other words, also you know, basically the university professors and newspaper editors and such like. But anyway, it is really about that kind of circle. And on one hand, it's basically saying, be now aware that there are all kinds of issues which we would rather you didn't discuss in a way that was critical of the regime. And you always will be running a risk if you do so. In other words, an invitation to self-censorship self-censorship, because I think that's the crucial element of, the, of this system, and also 
again, a further signal that says we are just cranking up just one notch, but still cranking it up. The level of concern about the nasty outside world and its attempts to subvert the processes that are going on within Russia. And we are encouraging everyone to think about where they are in their loyalties. Which side of the line do you want to be? So I think that's really the sort of the, the main significance of it. Because, yes, of course, this is a, a new marker of this authoritarian and, frankly, pretty paranoid turn. It's about a regime that just simply feels more and more that there is no room for, a, shall I say, a loyal opposition. It's quite notable, for example, that of the most recent batch of people who are designated foreign agents, most of them were not journalists. The largest individual contingent of them came from Golos, the election monitoring NGO. You may just think of yourself as supporting free elections, goes the message. But if you are providing aid and comfort to our foes, then you become our foe. And that makes you a foreign agent. Of course, not everyone is going to get hit by it. I mean, technically speaking, if, for example, discussing the morale of the troops in a way that actually foreigners can pick up on, makes you a foreign agent, then presumably Defence Minister Shoigu and the army newspaper Krasnaya Zvezda would actually be considered. Of course, they're not going to be rated. Now, this is also going to be deeply counterproductive when we think about it for the regime. I mean, corruption, for example, is a scourge. Corruption is in many ways the Achilles heel of this system. Yes, it's what encourages and enriches the people at the very top of the system. And yes, it's something that does, does allow a certain amount of co-optation. Those competent, ambitious and opportunistic individuals who might well be a danger to the system if they were locked outside it can be given ways of basically being bought off, being bought into the system. So yes, it has certain kind of systemic virtues. But on the other hand, it also continues to delegitimate the state. It certainly drains resources that could be spent on things that actually would would help the regime. I mean, particularly at the moment when after the elections, there is a clear drive now to try and meet some of the practical quality of life issues, which, which obviously motivate many of the, the population. You know, for all these reasons, actually, it is better, it would be better for the system to be willing to discuss some of the problems so that it can, it can actually address them. And in doing so, this is a theme I'll come back to for a moment, I mean, in some ways it, it is very reminiscent of Soviet times. So this is really about the senescence of late Putinism, in my opinion, and an attempt to pretend that things that are going wrong are not going wrong, and an attempt to just stop people from talking about them as if somehow that fixes the problem. I'm minded of there was a sort of classic Soviet political joke, and the idea was there was a, a train full of Soviet leaders, past and present, rolling across the wastes of Siberia, when suddenly it stops. Well, immediately Stalin leaps forward and says, shoot the driver. Well, the driver is dragged out and a bullet put in the back of his head, but that doesn't make the train go. So Khrushchev says, no, clearly it wasn't the driver's fault. We must let everyone know that. We must rehabilitate the driver. Well, they dutifully do that and they put up a little plaque for him, but that doesn't make the train move. So Brezhnev leans forward and says, comrades, why don't we just pull the curtains 
rock back and forth and pretend the train is still moving. Well, there is a certain element of, of that. There is a fear of transparency, which, let's be honest, is a fear of two other things. It is a fear of reality, and it is a fear of the Russian people themselves. Which is depressing, because there is so much that the regime could still actually feel proud of. I mean, let, let, let's be honest about that. I mean, yes, there is also much that will ensure that they will burn in hell. But nonetheless, those positive elements that, that, that this regime can claim credit for, so much of that is actually being squandered from the improved quality of life, which absolutely was, was a factor of, of, of the 2000s, and also real progress in fighting the very challenges which are being now suppressed. Take military corruption, which you know has been an issue of, of constant um, concern. And although it's nowhere near the levels of the 1990s, you know, nonetheless, it, it still has a, a serious impact on, on the defence budget. Now, what was the best source that I've certainly been using for information about the overall scale and specific cases of military corruption? It's the main military prosecutor. I mean, this is the point. There are people within the system who have been trying to deal with this. And if carried through to its logical conclusion, the current campaign would actually muzzle them too. I mean, indeed, actually, if I read the latest report from the main military prosecutor and use that and find it helpful, I mean, does that make him become a foreign agent? You know, this, this thing becomes ridiculous. We can wait, may well see further challenges between a Ministry of Defence that still seems determined and willing to talk to foreign experts, as well as a foreign ministry which, especially in the post-Geneva summit era, is committed to both direct talks, expert-level talks, but also so-called track two diplomacy, in which actually it's you know, separate experts and think tankers and so forth who get together. You know, this could, in theory, have a chilling effect on both. And more broadly, I mean, if one looks at this attempt to ignore what are really serious issues facing the system, the disconnect between different agencies, but also different schools of thought, and particularly between, shall we say, a security-minded and a pragmatically-minded elements within the elite structures. Indeed, this determination to keep all debates as intra-elite debates and excluding a wider population who I just basically fed the soma of propaganda and expected to believe it, even though, of course, they don't. You know, this is not Stalinism, but this is strikingly late Soviet. Ones in which, after all, corruption, blood, in other words, influence, trading, the black market, you know, all, all were, were, were crucial. Now, obviously, that's a very, very different context, but there are some really interesting parallels, too. And that leads me just to one final thought that doesn't really directly connect to, to the FSB's list. Obviously, the Soviet Union was eventually brought down, but also had arguably its best chance to revive itself by Mikhail Gorbachev, the reformer. The thing is, though, in my opinion at least, there would not have been a Gorbachev era. Gorbachev would not have risen to power and he wouldn't have had anything like the opportunity to do what he did without Yuri Andropov the KGB chief, 
who essentially brought together a coalition for some kind of change, who forced reform onto the political agenda by forcing the, the Soviet elite to actually come to terms with the extent to which their system was, was moribund, and you know, personally promoted Gorbachev. Well, we are waiting in some ways for a Russian Gorbachev, someone who can reform it. And maybe, in fact, we should be waiting for the Russian Andropov, who is not necessarily going to be a nice man, certainly not necessarily going to be a, d a Democrat, but nonetheless who actually has to be, on the one hand, tough enough and strong enough on the sort of Russian patriot agenda that no one can accuse him precisely of, of being weak and of handing over the country to the West, but nonetheless who is pragmatic, sensible, realistic enough to understand that something needs to give, in the long term at least, and also has the political weight to, if not actually embark on the reform program himself, but at least create the team that someday will. Now that's not going to be someone like Patrushev, Nikolai Patrushev, who probably in his own mind considers himself to be a worthy successor to Yuri Andropov. But I still can't help wondering, and this is something I'm going to come to in a future podcast, I still can't help wondering if that could be President Shoigu, the essentially solid coalition builder, the person who doesn't necessarily seem to have that same kind of visceral dislike of the West. I do wonder if Shoigu might be the next Andropov. But as I say, that's something else to talk about another time. Now I'll have a break, and then let's start talking about hybrid war. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. Of late, I've been speaking on a number of events relating to hybrid war. This notion of the sort of blending of conventional warfare, non-military methods of subversion that is meant to be this terrible threat we face from Russia. Which I wouldn't want to totally exclude, but I wanted to use this as an opportunity to talk about why I have a certain amount of uh, dissatisfaction with the current level of the debate. And I think that it sometimes misses the point, especially when it comes to the Russians. I mean, first of all, it's worth noting that this idea that there is something new and disturbing about the fact that military means, people trying to shoot or kill other people, are mixed with non-military means, subversion, demoralisation, etc. Look, that has always been the way. I don't think there is a single war in history that has not been hybrid. It is only in video games that you win by killing every one of the enemy's soldiers. Wars are always struggles of will. They're always attempts to break the other side's willingness or capacity to resist your will. Now, what is different, and I'll come to this right at the end, is perhaps the world in which these struggles are being fought. But let's not pretend that we've somehow stumbled upon some new way of war. And we also have to recognise the irony, the irony that the West and Russia 
both accuse the other of waging hybrid war against them, even without truly knowing or quite agreeing what they mean. You know, we have all kinds of other words. I mean, sometimes people say, oh, well, let's not call it hybrid. Let's call it, and we have, we've had asymmetric, we've got non-linear, grey zone, ambiguous. I'm really tempted tongue-in-cheek to try and push the idea of fuzzy war as the new buzzword of the moment. But when it comes down to it, we do not have a clear and above all agreed sense of what is going on. And I think that reflects the fact that there is not one thing going on. If one looks particularly at how the Russians think about it, really we're talking about three interconnected but distinct things. First of all, how does the military look at all this stuff? Now, again, and here I have the, the painful experience of having inadvertently created the Frankenstein's monster that is the Gerasimov Doctrine that has continued to, to lumber out into the world for all my attempts to, to lay it to rest. When I use that as part of a, a sort of what was meant to be a snappy title for a, a blog post that began to be taken rather too seriously for all, despite everything I could try and do to say, no, there is not really a Gerasimov doctrine. Anyway, this roots in uh, an article that the Russian chief of the general staff, General Gerasimov, wrote in... 2013 in the military industrial courier not exactly everyone's choice of bedtime reading though actually it probably would put you to sleep really quite efficiently and and in this he essentially described what he regards as, as the western way of war which is precisely to destabilize countries by a whole variety of, of evil means which I'll, I'll come to in the end but nonetheless, what this really was taken as is somehow a sign, a sign that, you know, although they talk about it being the West, actually, this is how the Russians themselves plan to use, you know, destabilization and subversion to prepare the ground to then conquer territories. And the problem was that this was then followed by the seizure of Crimea, which did seem to lend ammunition, if I can use that expression, to, to this idea. Because what we had in Crimea was precisely that, uh, that there was all kinds of subversive activities that went on before the so-called little green men or polite people in, in the Russian parlance of the Russian naval infantry and special forces found out across the peninsula and seized it almost bloodlessly. And it was indeed a, a textbook seizure. But nonetheless, what people had then interpreted is that actually this is how the Russians will fight their future wars. The interesting thing is, I mean, if you look at the big military exercises, most recently Zapad, one that took place in, in the West and in Belarus, these are really very much pre predicated upon what we might think of as conventional military scenarios. They start with a genuflection to the concerns of the Kremlin about the West actually trying to stir up trouble with precisely local insurgencies being coordinated by enemy special forces which have to be dealt with before there is a major counter-offensive. But essentially, the Russian military still plans and prepares and arms and trains to fight conventional force-on-force conflicts, whether expeditionary conflicts like Syria or whether, God forbid, some kind of apocalyptic struggle against NATO, or maybe even someday China. 
yes, the modern world does provide all kinds of ways in which you can boost your military capabilities by non-military means, by disrupting the enemy's chain of communications, particularly, you know, let's face it, those forces which still rely now on, on GPS mapping rather than actually anyone being able to read an old-fashioned paper map. Well, if you can spoof or jam the GPS signals, that gives you an advantage. Maybe you can undermine their morale by, as the Russians have done in the Donbass, using your electronic warfare capabilities to hijack their cell phones so that they seem to be sending each other messages saying, oh my god, we're all going to die and we really ought to run away. Yes, there are all kinds of new, new opportunities provided above all by the new technologies of the age. But in essence, the thought that there's anything new about trying to demoralise the enemy about trying to mislead the enemy. You know, these are all old, old tactics just given a new gloss. So that is how the Russian military think about this. There are new opportunities beforehand and during the conflict to tilt the battlefield odds in your direction, but essentially you are still fighting what's called a kinetic war. The key thing is there's also a second school of thought which is really articulated by the civilian political leadership or civilian security leadership, shall we say. And here we're particularly talking about the Security Council Secretariat, elements of the presidential administration and, of course, the intelligence and security services. And for them, in an era in which actually Russia, especially when it comes to NATO, let alone China, cannot count on having overwhelming military superiority and that actually warfare has become expensive, too expensive to fight on, on a massive scale if you can possibly avoid it. And I don't just simply mean expensive in the sense of the cost of the, of the tanks and the guns, though they have become exponentially more expensive, but also politically so, that actually your, your, your population is much less comfortable with the idea of its boys marching off to war. Well, in that era, actually, all these non-military means, the subversion, the destabilization and so forth, is not an adjunct to war. It's not what you do before you send in the little green men. It's an alternative. And I think this is the, this is the crucial thing. And really what these people have embraced is the notion that was articulated by George Kennan, the uh, scholar diplomat who was the architect, really, of the United States's post-World War II, early Cold War strategy, and he called it political war. The use of every means, overt and covert, legal, illegal, economic, political, you name it, short of war to achieve your, your national goals. And so I think this is really what, what we face in, in, in the West. I mean, I think actually we, we ought to be thinking of political war rather than hybrid war or anything else. You know, the use of disinformation to try and divide us, to distract us and to demoralise us. The use from time to time of corruption, though, as I'll discuss in a future podcast, I think we need to be much, much more sceptical about the idea that, that there is some kind of Russian capacity to use corruption on a mass scale to influence Western polity. And everyone who talks about weaponizing corruption ought to realize that corruption is not, alas, something the Russians do to us. It is something we do to ourselves and the Russians exploit. But anyway, as I said, that, that's a little, little, a little trailer for a, for a future thing. Um, but anyway, the idea is that all these, these means are an alternative to war. They're a way in which Russia can get what it wants 
which from when it comes to the West is as much as anything else to push us back. Remember, this is a, a country that is led by uh, an increasingly aging and paranoid collection of people who genuinely believe that the West is trying to marginalize and maybe even fragment the Russian Federation. You know, so as far as they're concerned, they're trying to push us back. And that, that means, as I say, distracting us, dividing us, demoralizing us. And these means are all, you might say, at Moscow's disposal to do that to us. And then there is a third way of thinking about hybrid war, or rather, Gibridnaya Voina, as the Russians would put it, because precisely as far as they're concerned, this is something that they face from us. They look at the color revolutions that took place in the post-Soviet space. They look at Arab Spring. They look at what's going on in Belarus. And again, the paranoid old men of the Kremlin are convinced that actually these are not natural organic risings, but instead the results of Western machinations. These are all made in Langley. And obviously, Yeromaidan, the so-called revolution of dignity in Ukraine, 2013 to 2014, was a, an absolutely pivotal moment from their point of view, as they felt, that's it. The West is coming to get us using hybrid war. So we have three different types. The military, who regard non-military means just simply as an adjunct to military force. The civilian political security leadership, who, let's be honest, are dominant, who see political war as an alternative, as a way of fighting back against what they see as a hostile encroaching West. And why? Well, that's because they think they face Gibridnaya Voina coming from the West. Okay, but so what? Well, first of all, I think it's important because it's often very difficult to recognize the distinctions between them. I mean, in their early stages, the first and the second look much the same. You know, if people are trying to sort of stir up, demoralize your country, um, to support radical, divisive movements, both of the left and of the right, maybe even also to sort of support kind of armed militant groups or you know, extremists. Well, that could be a prelude to military action, or it could be an alternative. This is the problem. They, they look the same in the early stages. And for that reason, we therefore need to fully understand the political motivations behind them. What the Kremlin really wants, what its appetite for risk is, rather than just simply waiting to see whether or not little green men follow on behind. The second reason why it's worth being aware of these distinctions is to address hyperbole. There is this kind of routine notion of presenting quote-unquote hybrid war as some kind of existential threat to the West. It is not. Even political war is unlikely to do so. Political war is largely about neutralizing countries. Yes, it can bring down one that is in a pretty much already about to collapse, akin to taking out that last brick from the Jenga tower that, that brings the whole thing tumbling down. But that's not where we are now. And whatever some of their more toxic and wild commentators may say, the Russians know it. We need to actually have a pretty clear-eyed sense of what Russian political war can do and, above all, can't do. And finally, it's important because we have to acknowledge the extent to which we risk being trapped within a vicious circle. Because as I say, as far as the Russians are concerned, well, I say Russians, as far as Putin and co are concerned, they face Western Gibridnaya Voina. 
And the problem is something happens that they choose in their own paranoid way to interpret as a Western operation, such as, for example, what happened in Belarus. They, as they see it, respond to it. They see themselves as counterattacking or in terms trying to deter such actions. We, though, because we know that we weren't behind what happened in Belarus, we see what the Russians are doing as aggression, as escalation. And we, quite naturally and understandably, choose to respond. And so the, the process goes. In many ways, I mean, I'm reminded of the process that led up to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which, after all, was one of the times when East and West came closest to actually nuclear war. The Russians, when they were talking about and actually they're moving towards putting nuclear weapons on Cuba, they were convinced that they were acting in response to the Americans' decision to put short-range nuclear missiles in Turkey. The Americans were of the view that actually the short-range nuclear missiles in Turkey were an entirely reasonable and proportionate response to the disproportion of military forces in Europe and the fact that the, the, the Red Army needed to be deterred. So in this respect, both sides were convinced that they were simply responding. And in the process, we led to this, this, this vicious cycle that took us down close to thermonuclear Armageddon. Well, OK, I, I'm not suggesting that hybrid war, political war, is going to lead any time soon to some kind of nuclear standoff. You know, but nonetheless, the same process occurs. And to that, I think we have to be much, much clearer about what we are talking about and, above all, about how the Russians are thinking about it. We don't have to accept their, their view of the world. Of course not. But we do have to understand how the world looks from the Kremlin's windows, how they understand, how they conceptualise these new forms of warfare, and from that we can base out our own reactions. After all, that is my crucial takeaway. It is that we need to understand how the Kremlin sees things. Now, too often the attempt to do that is mischaracterised by others as some kind of quest to empathise with the Kremlin. One doesn't have to do that. You don't have to internalise their views, let alone rationalise, justify and, and defend them, just simply to try and work out how the world looks through those Kremlin windows. That's crucial. And that's the basis on which we need to work out our own responses to Kremlin activities. But I am fully aware that I'm once again climbing up onto a very familiar soapbox. So I will stop now. I think it's the best thing I can do and allow you to enjoy the rest of your day. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. И только будь, пожалуйста, со мною, товарищ прав.